Well, we're continuing this morning in our series of the last three books of the Old Testament, and we come to Zechariah chapters 7 and 8. And before we get into the text this morning, I want to give you just a little bit of a heads up as far as the preaching schedule and where we're going here between now and Christmas and then into the new year. Uh, so today, chapter 7 and 8, next Sunday, Ian Kitchen will be with us. Ian was with us last year for a Sunday night service, and he's planting a Pillar Network church in Concord, North Carolina. So we're excited to have Ian up with us next Sunday to share a bit of a vision for their church and also to preach the word from the Gospel of Mark. Then I'm going to take the next two Sundays, which is the 11th and 18th, something like that, in December, and we're going to finish the book of Zechariah. So I'm going to combine chapters 9 to 11 and chapters 12 to 14. This is roughly how I had outlined the book when we started. I knew I wanted to take more detail at the front end uh, as we worked through those vision passages. And now getting to the second half, we're going to combine some of these chapters together and get more of the overview of what's going on. And then when we get to the new year, as we do every first Sunday in January, we will talk spiritual disciplines. Things like uh, scripture memory, Bible reading, Bible memorization, fellowship, all those kinds of things. It's a great way to start the year with an encouragement to follow the instruction of the word. And so we always start our years that way, always, for the last three years. But hopefully it's an always. And then for the rest of the month of January, we're going to take a four-week series looking at the Christian life as it relates to suffering and the Bible has so much to say about this, about God's involvement in it, about our response to it, about the cause of it, all these things. And I want our church to be prepared for whatever the Lord leads us through. I have no crystal ball. I don't know exactly what's coming. But as we look around, we can tell there's a mess in the world. And the mess is sin. And sin produces suffering and death. And I don't want you to get swept off your feet when life gets really hard. So we're going to take four weeks and look at what does it mean for the Christian to stand firm during trials and during suffering. I think it's going to be really good for us, and I'm eager to get there. Then we'll go back to Malachi, finish up the Old Testament, and see where the Lord leads us after that. So that's a broad overview of where we're going but as I said this morning, we will continue in Zechariah, looking at chapters 7 and 8. Now when we take sections this big, multiple chapters, we're not going to take time to read everything all the way through. I will read passages as we work through so that you can tell I'm not making it up, but I'm pulling this from the scriptures. And then as we get into the end of the book, I really encourage you, read this ahead of time. We're not going to take time to read all of it when we get together on Sunday morning, so please read these texts as you come to worship. It will really serve you in your hearing and understanding of the Word. So there's one big theme in these two chapters we're going to look at this morning, and it is the fact that God transforms His people. When the, when the presence of God returns to these people, and specifically in this situation, there is a change, not just a change in attitude or behavior, those are external things. And sometimes we can change our behavior by mere force of will, but that's not sustainable. There needs to be another transformation, another change that happens if the Word of God, what He has spoken to us, is going to take root and be lasting. And that is a change of heart. 
So the people of God must be transformed from where they are to where God wants us to be. And that's the theme of these two chapters. And we're going to see five areas of transformation as we look at these two chapters. But before we get into that, let's pause and ask that the Lord would help us in our understanding of his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for yet another opportunity to gather together as your people, to open your word together, and to hear instruction from it. Lord, I pray that you would direct my mouth this morning as I speak your words. I pray that you would open all of our ears and our understanding, our hearts, Lord, that we would not, as the text says, stop our ears or harden our hearts, but that we'd be receptive to the instruction of your word. Unless you come, Lord, and do the work through your Holy Spirit, we have no hope of changing. We have no hope of being transformed unless you do the work starting in our hearts. And so please, God, come and do that this morning. Work through this text. Work through my feeble attempt at explaining it and transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's why you've saved us. Book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul says that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, you glorified, and all of this for the purpose of bringing us into conformity to the image of your Son. So God, do it. Do the work this morning that we can't do, and in doing so, would you be glorified. We pray these things, and we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to see, the first area of transformation is this, that God transforms his people from fasting to feasting. God transforms his people from fasting to feasting. As we start chapter 7, we see a question being raised that these people come and ask, and it is a question about their tradition. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Zechariah 7, starting in verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now here's a little bit of context. It has been about two years since Zechariah last heard from the Lord. Okay, we, we left him in chapter 6 with the end of the visions, and that was about two years from this text. The temple is being built, and it's only about 18 months from completion. So it's taking shape, the stones are going up, the craftsmen are working like crazy, and there's real progress being made here on this temple. And this delegation comes from Bethel, which is a settlement just outside Jerusalem, and they come with a question about their religious practices the things that they have been doing and observing the whole time that they've been in exile. Now, fasting was done in Israel as a remembrance, okay, to commemorate something, usually something very significant and usually something not great. So, for example, the fast of the fifth month, which they reference in chapter 7, was a fast to commemorate the burning and the destruction of the temple, Solomon's temple, the first time. And so all throughout this exile, they had been fasting and mourning and weeping because the temple, the, the hub of spirituality for them had been destroyed and was gone. And so all throughout this time, they fast on the fifth, fifth month. But then they come back with this question 
And it's a logical question, right? Because as they sit outside of Jerusalem in their settlement, they are watching the temple being rebuilt. And as they mourn and they fast and they're in sorrow, they kind of look out of the corner of their eye and they see this great temple going up. And they say, wait a minute. We're fasting. We're mourning. We're depriving ourselves because there's no temple and yet there's the temple. So what do you do? You ask a question. So they send this delegation to ask of the priests and inquire of the Lord, what is going on? Should we still do this in remembrance of the temple being destroyed when there's a new temple going up right here? So tracking with me, that's, that's kind of where we're going here. Now the answer to their question doesn't really come until the end of chapter 8. Turn just a page over to chapter 8, verse 18. This is where God promises to transform their fasting into feasting. Verse 18, The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Okay, the, the point here is that the restoration of God's presence to his people is going to have such a, a, a dramatic effect on the way they live, on the way they worship, that what they formerly considered as fasting, mourning, is going to be transformed. No longer is there a reason to put sackcloth on and ashes on your head and deprive yourself because joy has returned through the presence of Almighty God. And when we read the beginning of chapter 7 and then connect it to the end of chapter 8, we see the same kind of language going on here. And so we can tell that everything that happens between these two passages is related. This is the bookend kind of feature of some of the prophetic language. That's why I took these chapters together. So God is going to transform their mourning into celebration. But how and why does he do that? That's a very important question. And as we go back to chapter 7, we get a little bit of a hint about what's going on here. The worship of the people, the, the traditions that they had kept up had become self-centered and mechanical and I think very much external. This brings us to the second thing that I want you to know. God transforms his people <clears throat> from serving themselves to serving him. The people ask a question in chapter 7. And he asks them a question back. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. God says to the people, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? See, God's not fooled by the external obedience of his people. The fact that they are going through the motions He's not fooled by that. He sees beyond what is outside and he sees into the heart, the motivation of what is going on with his people. Now the people were doing the right things on paper. In fact, they had increased their level of holiness. See, there was only one fast that God had commanded his people. Only one. You read the book of Leviticus, it's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The people were to fast on that day. Everything else was added that doesn't mean it was wrong or insignificant, but God had only commanded the one. And so the people, to kind of prop up their external holiness, had said, okay, we've got the one fast you've commanded, God, we'll do you better, we'll do four. Look how holy we are. And it became all about this external kind of holiness. And so God calls out their hypocrisy 
by asking them this very simple question, are you really worshiping for me? Or are you just doing this to kind of scratch the itch, to make yourselves appear more holy? And couldn't, couldn't we ask ourselves the same question? Why do you go to church on Sunday morning? Why are you here? I, don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled that you're here. I love gathering together with you. But why are you here? Does it kind of appease your conscience because you know you should do something holy, something churchy, something spiritual in your week? Or are you here to meet with God? To hear his word? To worship him? When you read your Bible, what's your motivation? Is it to understand the will of God for your life? To receive divine direction and instruction? Or is it so as you talk with people, you can say, well, in my devotions this morning, I read such and such. and like, oh, look at this guy. He reads his Bible a lot. When we pray, is it radically different if you pray in public as you do in private? The question is, are we putting on external additions to make ourselves appear more holy than we are? God sees right through that. And he asks the question, Are you doing this for me, or are you doing this for you? The people had elevated this tradition beyond its usefulness. It's a great tradition, and God had even commended it to them at times. But they had made it into something it shouldn't be. Now, I am all for tradition, as long as tradition lines up with the Scriptures. We ought not to do things just because people before us did them. We ought to do things because the Bible tells us to do things. And if that happens to line up with tradition, praise God. But we are not traditionalists that simply do things because someone before us did them. We obey the scriptures. We've got to be really careful not to elevate past experience, tradition, church tradition, whatever, above the authority of the word of God. There's a theologian named Yaroslav Pelikan, and he once said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead, Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So we've got to be really careful that even now, I mean, this is not just Israel, 520 B.C. This is us. We have to look at our motives. What drives you to do what you do? I think this text reminds us that God sees right through our externals and into the motivation of our heart. So gauge yourself. Ask yourself the tough questions. Why are you doing what you do? And are you doing it to glorify God? God asked his exiles, when you fasted, did you do it for me? Or were you just trying to appear holy? When you feasted and ate, was it out of thanksgiving to me for my provision? Or were you just having a good time and then slapping a little religion on it? God wants to transform his people. One of the ways he does this is the third thing I want you to know. God transforms his people from pursuing religion to pursuing his righteousness. The point of verses 8 through 10, as we see in this section in chapter 7, is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just, okay, if you want to please God, then here's what you do. It is a reminder. It is a call to the people that if they are going to name the name of God, if they are going around saying, I belong to Yahweh, we are God's people, then that ought to have some kind of impact, some kind of change, some transformation on the way they live their life. 
And the people had neglected some of the most basic elements of being the people of God, showing kindness, being fair in their business dealings, not lying, not perjuring themselves. They had neglected those things. So God calls them out on it. And he says, you want to be the people of God, you want to practice true holiness and righteousness, then pursue these things. They needed to be transformed, just like we do. And notice also the root of the problem is not so much in the actions, but it is a matter of their heart, of their internals. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. It all starts there. Everything we do, Jesus said, flows out of the condition of our heart. If the heart is wicked, the actions are wicked. Which is why we need a new heart. Because all of us have a wicked heart. This is the promise of the new covenant. Now, it does not matter how religious you are. It does not matter how much money you give or how philanthropic you are or how much volunteering you do. If your heart is not right with God, all of those external things are worthless before him. God is not impressed with your human effort, puny as we are. He is not impressed with what you consider to be generosity. He is impressed with humility that lays itself down before God and says, change my heart. Don't let me just go through these external motions. I don't want to just go to church on Sunday to appease my conscience. I want to know you, God. That's what's going on here. God sees right through the external practices of his people and calls them to pursue not just religious experiences, but to pursue his righteousness and the standard that he has laid down in his law. Fourth, God transforms his people from listening to their own desires to hearing his voice. This is a really important one. In the last verses of chapter 7, God reminds his people once again, and he's done this so many times in this book, he reminds the people of what happens when they do not obey the voice of God. God had warned them, and in verse 11, but they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears. This means plug your ears so you can't hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law, and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And God says in verse 13, As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, declares the Lord, and I scattered them. This is really important. To ignore or reject the word of God is foolishness. To prefer human wisdom should put air quotes around wisdom. To prefer human understanding or experience over the revealed word of God is foolishness. And it's almost this ironic thing in verse 13 when God says, you called, I'm not going to listen. Why? Because when I called on you, you didn't listen. And God scatters his people in judgment. And we've already seen how that happened before. The point of this section, I think, is to remind God's people that if they are to be transformed, if the promise of God is going to come true, that their mourning, their fasting, their weeping is going to be changed into seasons of rejoicing and joy, then something needs to happen. They need to be transformed. They need to stop listening to themselves 
and listen to the voice of God. When you and I read this passage, this last section of chapter 7, I really want you to hear this. We need to be reminded of the foolishness, the absolute folly of human wisdom when compared to God's wisdom. That doesn't mean we don't have anything worthwhile to say or to add or to contribute. But when you start to place these things side by side and you look at all the wisdom of man and you look at all the wisdom of God, it should not be a hard choice who we listen to. To reject the word of God, to to plug your ears and say, I can't hear you, and to, to harden your heart and turn away from God is suicide. Remember what Peter told Jesus? Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So why? Why would you turn away from life for human experience? It just doesn't make sense. So I encourage you, don't harden your heart to the Word of God. Don't think that you know better. Don't read the Bible and say, oh, there's no way that's what it means. I think I know better. No, you don't. And no, I don't. It is very dangerous to place yourself in a position of saying, I don't need the word of God. I know what to do. Listen, listen, listen to the word of God and let that word sink deep so God can transform you from listening to yourself to listening to his voice. The last point covers most of chapter 8 and tells us that God wants to transform his people from trusting in their own abilities and what they're able to do to trusting in his faithfulness. God knows that his people do not have what it takes to obey him perfectly, to do everything that he has commanded. So in his kindness and his goodness, he promises to supply them with what they need by returning to them with his presence and equipping them to do all of the things that he has commanded them to do. If you remember from the first chapter of Zechariah, we heard about the jealousy of God, how his jealous passion for his people is what motivates him to act on their behalf or to act as their judge. And here we see some of the same things, that God's passion, his desire is to give good things to his people. He is jealous for them. He loves them. And he wants to do the right thing and to do what is good for them. So let's look at five promises very quickly as we come to the end. Five promises God makes to the people in chapter 8 as we see him transforming them from trusting in themselves to trusting in him. First, he promises to return to Jerusalem. Verse 3 of chapter 8, thus says the Lord, I have returned to my people Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now this theme of the return of God's presence has been all over these books, right? We have seen this so many times as a promise and we see in the future that God fulfills it. You might ask, okay, why all of the returning? Why does it say over and over and over again? Because this was the hope of the people. You have to remember that when they were in exile, when they had been taken away and the temple had been destroyed, everything they knew about God and the worship of God and all that was wrapped up in their religious experience was gone. And they had been wandering around, as it were, for the past 70 years, wondering when is God going to come back. So the promise that God will return to his people was so precious to them. 
And we also have to remember that there's the immediate fulfillment of a prophetic text and there's often a future fulfillment. So yes, God is going to return when the temple is built and he will dwell among his people in Zechariah's day. But also, as we keep reading in the scriptures, we find out that now, because of Christ sending the Holy Spirit, every believer, every child of God will experience the fullness of God's presence through his spirit. And one day, new heavens, new earth, new body, new capacity, we will experience the literal full presence of God. What a promise and what a blessing for these people to hear. Second, God promises to bless Jerusalem with long life and with new life in verses four to five. I think this is really, really neat and really interesting to see that there's not only older people Uh, You read the text and you see they're walking around with canes. They're kind of hobbling around the city. The point of that is the absence of war, the absence of conflict. They're not worried about going out of their houses and walking down the street because it's peaceful. God has returned. And the young, this says boys and girls, that's the words for young people, means that there is stability, there are families, there is growth, there is productivity. This is also, by the way, the mark of a healthy local church, to have younger saints and older saints worshiping, serving, doing life together. And I'm so grateful that at Grace Bible Church, the Lord has blessed us with this. There is a lot of gray hair, and there is a lot of not gray hair, whatever the opposite of gray is. It is such a blessing to have young people here and to have older people who can instruct and help and encourage the young ones. This is the promise of God (laughs) that there is going to be this new life and old life. So great. Third promise. God promises to bring other nations into Jerusalem in verses 7 and 8 and make them his own. Now this promise particularly, I think, looks back to what we just looked at in the exhortation to Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abram, I'm going to make you a a nation that's unstoppable, those numbers as the sands of the sea, and this promise looks to that, that not only is the gospel and the good news of salvation, the hope of God, just for the Jewish people, but it is going to go to everyone. The blessing of God goes to everyone. We see this especially in the age of the apostles, as the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, spreads. And many people are brought into fellowship with the Lord. Fourth promise is a promise of productivity for God's people, verses 9 to 13. Now God makes these promises and these statements like, let your hands be strong. When you and I encourage someone, if if I were to come up to you and I know you've got something coming up this week that you really need focus and endurance, and I say, man, I hope it goes really well for you. I hope you're strong enough, you stay healthy to do it. There's nothing that I can do to really make sure that happens, right? I mean, it's nice. It's an encouragement, and we should do those kinds of things. But when God says something like, let your hands be strong, do the work, he can make it happen. He doesn't just say things like, well, I hope that works out for you. He ensures that things work out. He gives the strength. You remember earlier as we were going through these books, the people were putting their money in bags with holes in the bottom. They couldn't gain a profit. The crops wouldn't go. The rain wouldn't come. God says, or is it verse 15, so again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of 
Judah, verse 12, I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. This is God's promise. And when God makes a promise, he makes sure it is fulfilled. So he promises prosperity, productivity, back to his people after a long season of dryness. It's just one of the ways that he transforms. Last, fifth, God promises to drive away the fear of the people. The people were very aware of their sinfulness. They were very aware of their shortcomings. They had been told this by the prophets. They also knew the history of the nation of Judah and Israel that God had so often returned in judgment, in punishment because of their disobedience. So you can imagine that there was a little bit of flinching going on when they hear, hey, God's returning. They're like, oh no. But this time, God's not coming in judgment. He's not coming to punish. The verse 15 that I just cited, so again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. God has promised that just as he is faithful to punish their disobedience, according to the terms of the covenant, he will also honor and bless their obedience according to the terms of the covenant. He is going to return with good to the people, and the message attached to that is, do not be afraid. He's not coming in judgment this time. He's coming with his blessing. Now notice as we come to the end of chapter 8, the result of God's work among his people, this, this transforming work that he's doing to transform them from a people of mourning to rejoicing and from depending on themselves to depending on him, all of this is a display of God's faithfulness that will be visible in such a way as to attract the attention of those around God's people. You see that in the last several verses, 20 to 23. God's people had been and were being transformed by His Spirit, and as a result of this, they were going to live in such a way that as other people observed them, as other people watched the children of God, they said, what is going on with them? I want to know what's going on. I want in on that. I want the life that these people have. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue. Now this is just a Hebrew idiom for a lot of people. Okay, that was just a way to say a lot of people are going to take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Notice the attractional thing here is not the ability of the person it is not their skill, their, uh, their articulate nature to speak really smoothly. It is the fact that God is with them. And that is what attracts the other people to the Jewish people. So let me close with a question. Why would anyone follow you? Why would someone look at your life and say, I want what they have? Is there any part of your conduct that clearly shows God has and is transforming you from self-dependence to God-dependence, from religious experience to pursuing his righteousness? Is there any evidence in the way that you live your life that would cause the people that know you best to say, you're always talking about God, I want to know what you have? Is there anything in your conduct that someone could observe and say, what is different about them? The effect 
in Zechariah 8 of the transformative power of God is that other people notice and they want in on it. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before others that they would see your good works with their eyeballs. Look and see. It's observable. They would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If you are a Christian, if the gospel has taken root in your heart, if you are being transformed by God, then your life should look like it. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about standard. You don't have to look how I look. I don't have to look like you look. But if you have been hit with the force of redemption by God, you should look different. Whatever that means for you, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you what you should look like, but I'm telling you you should look like something. The transformative power of God is not meant to remain a private, hidden thing. Yes, it starts in our hearts. It is something between you and the Lord brought about by the power of His Holy Spirit. But once that happens... Let the rest of your body know and live your life in a way that other people say, you have the Lord, I want it. This is so often how people come to know Jesus. It's not always by having some eloquent speech prepared. It's good to articulate the gospel. We have to know how to do that. But live it. Live it. You have so many more opportunities if your life looks refreshingly different. So consider that this week. I think it's almost ironic that God, in his wisdom, gives us Thanksgiving as a holiday, as an observance, immediately followed by a season of materialism. What an opportunity for Christians this time of year to demonstrate we have a different hope. We have a different desire. We have a different confidence. I don't have to throw a fit because I don't get the gift I want. I don't have to be frustrated when I don't get my way. I don't have to pursue greed and selfishness and materialism. I can be satisfied in God. And the world sees that and goes, no way, Jose, where'd you get that? I want to know what this is. So that's my encouragement to you. Live your life as if you have been changed. Because you have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the transforming power of your word Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that now indwells every believer, that we do not have to rely on our own abilities, but we can trust your faithfulness to do what you have promised to do. Lord, you are so good. You are so worthy of our praise and our devotion and our very life. And I pray that for everyone in this room, God, we would understand you have changed us. And please, Bring us into alignment with who we really are. So much of the Christian life is just becoming who we are. You have said we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We have been restored. So God, help us to act like it. And as we do, would you bring many people into your family? It's a work that only you can do, and we are so humbled that you would use us in this process. So God, please, do it. Do the work and make us lights that shine in a dark world. And we give you praise for what you've promised to do and pray that you would be faithful as you always are. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.
Amen.